Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when 2020 started, you may not have had road trips high on your list of things to do on your vacation, but let's face it, everything changed this year, and I know a lot of us have been doing exactly that. I just had my second or third one of the year staying right in BC, and it has been fantastic. So there's still some time left, right, to enjoy perhaps a little vacation before things get too cold for you to do that. So we thought we would talk about that. Road trips. What do we need to know about this? Well, joining us now is Jonathan Klinger. Uh, Hagerty's VP of Car Culture uh, to talk more about road trips. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? I am very good. Thank you. That's because I just came back from a week off there, but I have a feeling a lot of people are talking road trips right now. Have you gotten that impression as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, if you think about it, so many families, especially with uh, in the summer, who would have been planning some sort of a vacation that involved flying, well, many of them aren't doing that. And, and so they're turning to uh, rediscovering the fun of the good old-fashioned road trip. Makes you appreciate those giant station wagons that we all used to ride around on when we were kids, right? <laughs> That, that's right. Sitting in the back seat, facing, uh, looking at the cars coming on you, right? Exactly. Uh, how do we make sure, though, Jonathan, advice-wise, uh, make sure that our cars are prepared and ready for a road trip? Like, I think a lot of us might just hit the road without maybe running through a few things first. Absolutely. You know, uh, modern cars are so good that it kind of allows us to forget about um, some preventative maintenance at times. And so, one of the things that we recommend is if you're not a person who services your vehicle yourself, pay for a pre-trip inspection. Just about any auto repair facility uh, will put the car up on a lift, give it a thorough once-over, and, and they could uh, point out anything that might potentially give you a problem down the road. But then in addition to that, even if you're doing a day trip, just think of the simple things. Make sure your tire pressures are um, properly inflated, make sure you have windshield wiper fluid. Um, speaking of, you know, we only tend to think about replacing our windshield wipers when it's raining. So, you know, make sure you've got good wiper blades before you take off. And then the last thing I would say back to the tires, make sure your spare tire is properly inflated, because if you happen to need it, the last thing you need is for it to be flat as well. Yeah, that's really good advice. I was recently on a road trip and I had to fill my engine coolant. So we should also tell people to make sure that their engine coolant levels are good. Absolutely. Especially while we can still have some warm days, you know, summer is coming to an end, but, uh, but yeah, especially if you're climbing the mountains, that that's critical. I also think it's important, Jonathan, to have a chat with the people you're going to be traveling with about like, how often do they expect you to stop? I'm one of those people who like to just drive until I get there. But a lot of people, they don't want to do that. Well, that's right. And, and one of the things that I would stress about the road trip is the journey itself can be just as much fun, if not more so than the end destination. So this mindset of let's get there as quickly as we possibly can, just throw that aside and, and, and give yourself permission to 
we're going to stop when we meet, whenever we want to, whether it's to check out a site or to stretch your legs or, or have a restroom stop. And, and it's okay if it adds two hours to the trip when you get there because it makes it more fun versus that old mindset of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Now, where do you stand on the issue of staying occupied in the car? Like as kids, we were just, you know, told to look out the window and enjoy the scenery. But nowadays, you know, you've got so many things you can do. So you can do playlists, you can watch movies in the car. Like, where do you stand on that? Okay, so there I have two extreme schools of thought. For me personally, I actually love to just put the phone in the glove box, just get rid of all of the electronic distractions and truly enjoy the scenery around you because, you know, we all, whatever our situations are these days, it's different for everybody. And a lot of people are living in this virtual world and doing zoom calls all day and just, you know, get rid of the phone and anything else electronic and, and be present with yourself. And, and there's a certain Zen in that, that being said, if you have younger people or, or people that are getting a little bored, there's so many amazing electronic distractions we can have. Um, to provide them. And to your point, think about your playlists in advance of the trip, whether you like listening to podcasts or audio books or just your favorite road trip uh, list of songs. Oh, I'm a big fan of the audio book on a road trip. It is that is such a great way to go. Me too. You can just you can cover an, an amazing amount of distance and not even realize it once you get sucked into a good book. That is so true. Well, Jonathan, I'm going to give that more thought then. Plan my next road trip around that. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Yep, fall is just upon us, and there's some beautiful driving days ahead. There certainly are. That's Jonathan Klinger, Hagerty's VP of Car Culture. Hagerty is an insurer that they put on a lot of car shows. They do a lot of valuation on cars. So they are all about helping people travel in their cars, which many people are also doing right now. I did a beautiful road trip last week, uh, you know, from Terrace up to Prince Rupert, driving, you know, up into the Nass Valley absolutely gorgeous. So there's so many wonderful spots around the province. And if you have a great BC road trip, tell me about it. What is your favorite stretch to drive? Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. A mandatory mask mandate, as was done in other provinces and other countries. Uh, we're requesting smaller cohorts and class sizes. We know the class sizes are, are going to be just far too large. Physical distancing will not be possible, and the classes do not have proper ventilation in them, many of them. The other thing that what we'd like to see is if the numbers stay low, for now, you know, we have the ability to send them in, but for now, what we'd like to see is proper virtual learning option connected to a child's classroom mandated by the province, as was done in Ontario and other jurisdictions. That's White Rock dad, Bernard Trust. Uh, He is suing the province, actually, over their reopening plans for schools. And this, of course, comes as school reopening guidelines have been published by the province. And they are facing quite a bit of criticism. Different districts are also putting their plans out there as well. And all of this culminated with a group of teachers and parents taking their concerns public at a rally over the weekend. Now, our next guest was involved in the rally. It is Lisa Descari, who is a teacher in Richmond and she joins us now to talk more about uh, the concerns that are going on out there. Lisa, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So we've had a lot of changes to the plan, right? Over the last couple of weeks, we've heard what different districts are doing. What remains your concern about all of this? Well, I think uh, the 
changes are positive, but the one thing that really hasn't changed for most kids is that they're not going to be able to be physically distanced in class. And we're really concerned. Um, I'm concerned as a teacher and a lot of parents I've talked to are concerned that it's just not going to be safe for their kids to go back. Uh, And so they're really looking for a safer option. And how do you think they can do that? How can we socially distance and get kids back in school? I think we really need smaller class sizes. And um, for older kids, I know some districts have tried uh, having kids go part-time, and then that reduces some of the class sizes. But I know in Richmond, uh, our district had uh, uh, brought forward a proposal to do that for grade 8s and 9s, which are the grades I mostly teach, uh, and it was uh, turned down by the province. So uh, if I go back to my classroom, it's going to be 30 kids, in a 75 square meter classroom. And that means they're going to be really um, in there like sardines. And I'm lucky I have a little bit more ventilation than a lot of classrooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of classrooms in BC, you know, don't have windows that open. And um, we know now that the virus is spread as an aerosol. So yeah, we really need smaller class sizes. Now, how do you think that could be done? Like not every school or district would have the room to do that. Do you think there's room though where you teach? Um, Well, some people have talked about some creative solutions. I mean, some people have said uh, certainly for grade 8s and 9s, they probably, uh, you know, they probably could handle having just a a half school day and and being on their own for part of the time. And even for elementary now, some uh, one parent said to me now that there is an option from the federal government uh, for childcare, some money for childcare, that some of them probably could take care of their kids part of the time at home and have the kids just go part-time and that would allow smaller classes. But obviously more funding would solve it. And if there were more teachers and then we could, you know, we've had schools that have closed, we have community centers, we have um, other large spaces where there is no, uh, you know, there's no allowance for large gatherings that we could maybe use to have extra classes. And Mm -hmm. so with every district kind of working on their own plan, what have you heard from the Richmond School District on this? Um. I actually, to be honest, I've been so busy with organizing the rally that I haven't kept up even with all the details from my own district. What I have heard is that um, I think Richmond is uh, one of the ones that has had more of a remote option for some parents. And, uh, you know, they've really tried their best to to accommodate parent concerns. But uh, I know one school's trustee said to me, you know, she would love to have also plexiglass screens for in classrooms, but that they just didn't have the money. There isn't enough right. money really coming from the province to do what they need to do to keep kids now, and the adults in the building safe. Lisa, have you talked, have you thought about what it is that you're going to say to your students? Because obviously this is only going to work if everybody buys in, right? Students included. So have you talked about how you're going to discuss this with them? Mm, yeah, I I haven't really gotten that far. Um, I, uh, you know, this issue isn't really just about me, but I'm uh, actually medically fragile and I don't think it's going to be safe for me to go back to the classroom at all. Uh, So I'm pursuing an accommodation for myself. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, And I know there are other teachers who are in that boat. For teachers, my colleagues who are going back, um, yeah, they're struggling with that because obviously, you know, we don't want to lie to kids, but we don't we don't want to scare them, but uh, I think all we can do is be honest about what's happening and uh, do our best. But it's it's pretty terrifying. I have I have colleagues who are really scared for themselves and for you know close family, inter, a lot of intergenerational families that I know where you know right. the grandparents live in the house and and they're definitely at risk. You said you're pursuing an accommodation. Do you know what that would look like? How you would be able to continue to perhaps also teach? 
Um, I don't know, but uh, I know that in some districts they've said that some, because some kids also have accommodations and they have to do distance learning, it's not safe for them to be in the classroom or their parents have, have deemed it unsafe, then sometimes those teachers are allowed to teach those kids with distance learning. So that may be one of the things that could happen, if uh, possible. All right, so what are you looking for in the next week, right? Because we pretty much have a week left here. Yes, I know. It's uh, it's unfortunate, really. We had the whole summer and uh, really feel like the, the provincial government <laughs> wasted a lot of that time. Um, yeah, I mean, we turned on a dime in March when the pandemic was declared. I would hope that the uh, BC government would see the urgency and really just start talking to, you know, maybe the BCTF and and telling parents that they've heard these concerns Mm -hmm. and that they're going to start acting on them. I mean, there's no emergency to start school exactly on the 10th. Maybe there could be something like other provinces where they give us a little more time and that they actually make some changes. All right, Lisa, listen, best Mm -hmm. of luck to you. Okay, take care of yourself. But thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Coming up in our next hour of the show after the 7 o'clock news, we're talking with the superintendent of the Surrey School District to talk about their back-to-school plans, get a sense of where they're at, so stay tuned for that. Right now, though, I want to talk about uh, this video that's going around because, you know, sometimes I see things online and on TV that leave me a bit speechless, and that has been the case with this latest video of a black bear interacting with a jogger on the Coquitlam Crunch Path, which, by the way, has now been closed down because they are concerned about this. But this is just the most recent, right, in a string of stories that we have seen and heard about, about bears in that area. So we thought, you know what, I think clearly people need a little brushing up here on the rules of being bear aware. So joining us now is Lucy Cadman, the education coordinator with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Lucy, thanks for doing this. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Good morning. When you see that video, do you shake your head as well and go, what is going on here? Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, with everybody uh, listening to Dr. Bonnie, well, we're having a lot more encounters with people uh, between bears uh, in their own habitat. So lots of people are spending time outside on the trails and uh, in the forest here on the North Shore especially. Um, and so we are seeing a rise in encounters between bears and people. Uh, we don't have more bears, but we certainly have more people out there to see and encounter them and lots more people catching it uh, on video as well. Right. So this is that's what we saw here. We saw this black bear approaching a woman, a jogger mm-hmm. on the trail and kind of gently swatting her leg and, you know, people standing around recording it. What should have happened? What should have been going on? Uh, whenever you're close to a wild animal, whether it's a bear, a coyote, whatever it might be, um, I always say leave the phone alone. The priority is to be present. Um, and so what we should be doing when we're spending time in bear habitat, especially if you're running, uh, when, we're, when we run or when we're on our bikes, we're typically faster and quieter, um, more likely to surprise a bear. Uh, now, this doesn't seem to be a surprise encounter, but um, definitely we need to be making much more noise. And we need to set the boundaries too. Sometimes bears just need to be, need to be reminded uh, not to approach people. And they're very intelligent animals and we can use our voice. Um, so typically if, if a bear approaches you with intent, which is really rare and it is very rare for a black bear to make physical contact, you would use a deep, firm tone. Say, hey, no, and tell the bear that it's approaching your personal space. It does seem, though, doesn't it, Lucy, like too many people think this is just some cute, cuddly creature that's come up to them. Absolutely. So 
bears by nature are not aggressive animals, they're very calm animals, but they are wild animals and we must remember to give them space. Far too often, I'll attend bear reports to provide education within the community and there are people chasing bears, families chasing bears for photographs. No. A bear was killed on the North Shore last week on Monday and families approached her within five meters to get a, a video of her eating garbage. And that seems to be the priority when a bear is on people's properties. Um, the priority is getting a video and people silently film and allow the bear to eat from the fruit tree. Um, and they're not moving them on. And we need to help the bear community. We rely on humans uh, to set boundaries and make sure bears don't feel comfortable around our homes. And then we've got responsibilities when we spend time uh, on the local trails and in the forest to reduce our impact. Now, these bears get pushed around by people all day long, and they show incredible tolerance every single day. Now, this is not an aggressive encounter. Uh, black bears, by nature, are not aggressive animals. Um, you know, it was a, a cap uh, and definitely we do not want bears approaching people. We do not want bears touching people, but we can set those boundaries. And we definitely advise um, learning how to respond. Join uh, a bear encounter if you're spending time in their habitat, carrying bear spray as a non-lethal tool. Um, I've never had to deploy my bear spray, but I always carry it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been a great tool in this situation um, had uh, the jogger deployed the spray before the bear was that close. We want to use our voice first to set the boundaries. The bear doesn't listen. We just deploy a small amount of that bear spray just to teach them and set that that respect. Right. It sounds like we all need to learn some lessons on this. Lucy, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Bye. Lucy Cadman, Education Coordinator with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Yeah, a lot of people need to learn how to behave if they see a bear. What we're seeing in videos, by the way, is the absolute wrong way to behave. This is Mornings with Simi. All 60 public school districts have posted their detailed restart plans online so parents and families can continue to prepare and support their children for a safe return to the classroom. All right, that's Education Minister Rob Fleming. We are, what, 10 days away now until the kids go back to school or so. But for every district, it might look a little bit different. And obviously, parents still have some concerns. So we thought this week, we're really going to focus on back to school. We're going to help out with some of the largest school districts there, get more information out to you. Uh, Starting today, right now, we're dealing with the Surrey School District and the Superintendent Jordan Tinney joins us now to talk more about what that's going to look like. Uh, Jordan, thank Thank you very much for being here. No problem. Glad to be here. I would imagine you're going 24-7 right now. Are the plans kind of still evolving at this point? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, we've, we've submitted our plans, but uh, given the scope of, of the timetable changing, particularly in secondary, you know, everybody's basically working flat out to make sure that those timetables will be ready for, for opening week. And what is it that you have heard most of all from parents since the plan was initially released? Do you know, in fairness, I, I think probably two two distinct groups. Um, one uh, realize, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and they're they're being patient and supportive, and lots of good comments about how parents feel about the plan. Um, separate from that, there's also uh, a block of parents who are still nervous, right? And they're they're not sure about. It isn't necessarily that they believe the plans are are good or bad. They're just uncertain about the pandemic and sending their child to school. So, for those parents, I think the themes we tend to hear is 
they want to remain connected to their their current school. Like mm-hmm. they really feel a deep allegiance to their current school, but they're looking for something else, um, potentially an online option or a blended option, um, and with the hope of returning at some point. So they don't they don't want to go full blown distributed learning. Uh, and go somewhere else. They want to remain connected to their neighborhood school and have an option and hopefully return at some point. All right. We know the Surrey District Parent Advisory Council is uh, asking for more at-home learning options. What does that option look like right now for Surrey? Um, right now, I'm, for us, we're pretty limited for our distributed options. Uh, they're like We're very full with our K-7 distributed learning program. Um, in secondary, and particularly in grades 10 to 12, we have a blended option. So it's one day or one block a week, um, one all morning face-to-face, and then the block in the afternoon is an online option. Um, and then for grades 8 and 9, they're in full-time. So, so those are the options right now and what the program looks like. And we still are considering this week what else we might be able to provide. Yeah, and what about the physical distancing in classrooms? How is that challenge going? Well, you know that the direction from Dr. Bonnie Henry is that when you're within a learning learning group, uh, that physical distancing, the two meters doesn't apply, right? So as long as you're within your learning group and you stay in that group or that cohort, then of course you try to minimize physical contact and be distanced wherever you can, but the two meters doesn't apply. It's when people leave the classroom and they can't safely distance from others, that's when we, you know, it's going to be trickier and that's where you see the, the current recommendations right. around things like masks. Yeah, and let's let's remind people then, for Surrey, what is the learning cohort? What kind of groups are we talking about here? So in, in elementary school, largely what students will see is it is their class that is the learning group. They may be paired up with another class, so the maximum would be 60. In secondary, in grades 8 and 9, we're a K-7, to 8-12 to 12 district. In grades 8 and 9, the learning group will be 60, the two classes. And in grades 10 to 12, the learning group size will actually be 30, just the single class that you're in in the morning. That's, that's the right. Size. And so when we say learning group, Jordan, what does that mean exactly? Really a class. I mean, it's the group of kids you're with. Um, you know, you learn together. You think about the grades 10 to 12. If you had, you know, social studies 10 in the morning, that class is your learning group. And then you're basically going to go home in the afternoon. Um, and then you will be taught in a blended online model for the afternoon. You do get the option to come in one afternoon a week. But in that case, the, group, right. the class size will be much smaller. Right. So then people should understand that's the group you're going to be spending the most time with is that class that you are with. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So people can kind of act accordingly then. And what about masks? Where is Surrey on that? Well, you see the, the orders. Basically, everyone in our school district, students, staff included, will get two masks. And what we say is wear a mask anytime you're comfortable, anytime you're outside your learning group and you can't safely distance from others. Um, but still, even when you're wearing a mask, we're asking people to maintain physical distancing. Um, and as you know, elementary student, school students are not required to wear masks. And the other part that people don't often talk about masks is, that, of course, we're going to be living with COVID, right? So anytime mm-hmm. that a student or staff member develops symptoms at school, they're going to be given a mask while they're prepared to go home. Okay. And then, so a couple questions on that. One, what is the protocol then for a case at a school? So if we have a case, basically uh, the person would be isolated and they would be sent home. If it's a child, we'd get their parents to come and get them. If it's a staff member, we would send them home and then we would connect them with public health. And then public health uh, does, of course, the person would be tested. And if it is positive, then public health would come back to us um, and say, yes, there's been a positive test. And they would also reach out to the close contacts. 
So if you were one of my close contacts and I was uh, positive, they would phone you and they would suggest that you get tested. Um, and that mm-hmm. this is really what then what public health does. They take over, they do the contact tracing, they tell you um, if you need to be tested, and they may go as far as in a school saying to, uh, they might say to an entire learning group that you need to be isolated. Right, that's what I was wondering then. So if there's a positive test, does that mean that everybody in that learning group then has to isolate? Yeah, we would wait for direction from public health. But yep, it could be a whole group. Um, and it could be eventually a school it could be back to sort of stage three in the ultimate worst case scenario. But prim- primarily, this is the whole concept behind the learning group is keep it small. It's about contact tracing mm-hmm. and it's about uh, keeping it isolated to that small group. And that's why we're happy to have the groups very small at secondary. Now, Jordan, you know, we've done a lot of talking with parents and teachers and everybody about the situation. But what kind of education program is being prepared to talk to the kids about this, to the kids in school, because their behavior will also determine a lot about what happens. Yeah, you can imagine what the first uh, couple weeks of school is going to look like. New routines for kids, and new movement, you know, confusion about when to wear a mask, when not to wear a mask, uh, you know, where do you go to eat, where do you, you know, how do you enter, yeah. staggered entry, staggered exit. It's a lot for, for students to take in. Um, typically, my, my experience has been the elementary kids are the best at this. You know, they're really, uh, they're fairly rule-bound. Uh, you know, they, they listen, they, uh, they even police each other pretty well. Uh, I think the more, the larger challenge will be the secondary students, you know, adolescents, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, um, they're, they're going to be, I think, it's going to be tougher for them because they have lots of friends across cohorts. Um, you get into things like uh, relationships, boyfriends and girlfriends in senior secondary school, and uh, kids are going to have to figure all those things out. It'll be a challenge for sure. Now, but is there? Do it. Yeah, I know. Is there guidance being given to teachers though? Is there? Is it going to be left to every teacher to talk to their students about this? No. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yes, for, for teachers to talk to their students, but the guidance for sure. You remember, we've got a delayed start for school. So the right. first two days, the 8th and the 9th of September, that really is all about safety orientation for staff and how are you going to talk to students. And then, of course, in the first uh, few times back in your class, I have no doubt every teacher will be talking with their children right. about new routines. So what percentage of students are you expecting back? You know, our survey uh, surveys are always uh, tricky things, right? We had 90% of parents that said they were intending to return to school, but we also know on surveys that, that people are nervous about saying, yes, I'll attend school, or no, I not. I won't, fearing that maybe we'll withdraw them or something if they say no. So we're hoping upwards of 90%, but we're, as I said, we're developing plans for, for the others to see how we can support all children. That's our goal. And, you know, we want our, our kids to go to their regular school, their neighbourhood school, that's the intent, and that's where we hope to be. All right, we'll see what happens. Jordan, thank you for your information this morning. All right, you're welcome. You take care. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School District Superintendent, uh, talking about, you know, we're, we're 10 days away now from kids heading back to school. All this week, we're focusing on that issue uh, in Surrey. You heard there, they're expecting a lot of kids back, as many as 90% of kids back in schools, but still questions, right? Education for the kids. How are you going to approach this in high school? This is Mornings with Simi. So one of the ways in which we have been able to enjoy going to restaurants in recent months is the fact that so many of them have been able to expand with street or sidewalk patios. 
it has made a huge difference for social distancing, for restaurants to be able to have more people there uh, and still kind of space them out and, and, you know, still make some money, hopefully, right? Keep them in business. Well, the program was so popular in Vancouver that there were 360 licenses that were granted for these patios. But here's the catch. They are set to expire on October 31st. But we're going to talk more about that now with Sarah Kirby-Young, who's a Vancouver City Councillor with the MPA. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Um, Now, 1,300 people have responded to a Twitter poll on this, with 80% of them saying, listen, we want to see this extended. Do you support that idea? Well, 100%. I put that Twitter poll out yesterday morning and woke up this morning and it's actually topped 1,600 now. Um, And it's really interesting to see because in speaking with restaurants all summer and going out to a few patios myself diligently, you know, doing my research and supporting our small business, um, I was hearing that some would like to stay open in the fall and winter time. But I wondered if human nature really wants to sit outside when it gets a little bit colder um, and some of the sunshine goes away. And it it looks like um, people are willing to do that. So how do we make that happen then? Um, Well, I think it's about extending the current temporary patio program that we put in place now. When we started that, and that kicked off, that motion got passed in May at council, we kicked it off on June the 1st. Um, It was really in response to COVID, and and no one knew sort of how long things were going to last and how long that recovery period was going to take. And so it was set at the end of October, logically thinking that that's normally a regular patio season, um, and typically when the weather starts to turn. Um, And now we're seeing that um, stats coming out from surveys done across Canada with Restaurants Canada that um, we could see more than half, 50 to 60 percent of our restaurants failing in the next 90 days by the end of November. And so I think as with everything else, COVID, we need to continue to adapt and pivot and be flexible. And to me, that means extending this temporary patio program for the restaurants that would like to continue to have those patios. Right. So you've heard from people on this. But have you heard from any restaurant owners or managers about can they do this, do they think, with, with the you know patio lanterns and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I have. I've been speaking with quite a, quite a number of different restaurants, and, and, and I think uh, it depends on the restaurant. It's mixed um, as to whether or not some want to do it. But um, I think uh, there is an appetite out there from a number of them, and I, I think especially if the public support is behind it, which is why it was so great to see that response on the Twitter poll. Um, and so I, I think it's giving the restaurants the maximum opportunity, and if it helps save um, you know, a number of restaurants, it's worth it. So this was, I guess, originally just supposed to be a temporary thing. So how do you convert that to a more permanent um, you know, per, more permanent bylaw? Well, the motion that I put forward before council broke for the summer at the end of July um, was to look at making this a, an annual, you know, year-round thing where we can have these pop-up patios because I think it has transformed how people have enjoyed the public space in the city of Vancouver. And the common comment you hear is, wow, why didn't we do this before? And why didn't we have this sooner? Um, and you just see the happiness on people's faces. They're smiling. It brings our streets to life. There's more of a sense of people-friendly space. And so I think the legacy from this, um, obviously, other than the fact it's been a lifeline for restaurants to help them, you know, stay alive, um, is the fact that people are really rethinking um, how we utilize our street space and and how we get people enjoying the outdoors. So um, there's a a huge desire to see these continue. I've often wondered about that, too, with all the things that we were kind of quick to put into place for the pandemic. It's really hard to take those things away once people get used to them, isn't it? Yeah, I, I call it sometimes the silver lining to the COVID cloud is that it's caused us to be a bit more flexible and relax our, our regulations um, and do things we wouldn't do before. So, for example, with um, one of the things that 
was included in the pop-up program was allowing craft breweries to have patios for the very first time ever in the city of Vancouver. So you might think that's a no-brainer. Why didn't we do it before? Um, you know, it's great. We've got a you know very thriving craft brew market, particularly in East Vancouver. Um, and we have those now, and people love them. Um, so I'd love to see that continue and that stay. Um, and the same with using the outdoor space. I also think, too, it's caused the city to show how what a positive impact we can have when we're more flexible um, and quicker at City Hall and turning things around. It could take up to seven months before to get a permanent patio approved. Um, and the turnaround time to approve a temporary patio was 48 hours. Okay, and that's the other thing was the reason why it would have taken so long before is that people would have raised concerns about parking, right? Taking away those street parking spots. What has been that situation been like? Well, I think people have been, I mean, number one, people's patterns have changed with COVID, so we haven't had as many people driving. Um, but I also think people are staying within their own neighborhoods. You know, if they were working um, before and traveling and commuting and going downtown, for example, they're not, they're working from home. Um, so I think that's helped around the parking discussion, but I think people are really open to reallocation of space when they see the positive and they see that it, it really adds to that quality of life. Okay, so then how do you move this forward? What happens now? Well, uh, it'll be heard at the first uh, council meeting when we're back the week of September 14th. Um, so I think council will have a great discussion about that. And if people want to see these patios, I would encourage you to, um, to write into Marin Council because uh, that always helps to hear people's voices and know this is something that they want. Um, so that's that's always a great thing to do. Now, some of the other things that changed in terms of at City Hall during the pandemic was even the issuing of kind of building permits and how you process those things. Is all of that going to stay in place? Because I know a lot of builders and developers are say they much prefer what's been going on. Yeah, there was a move uh, and there was a plan to shift towards a lot more online servicing uh, for development permits. So, you know, the old days when you saw the photos that people would put out of you know, exactly. the long rolls of plans, you know, people waiting outside the office for their turn and sort of standing in person are, are gone now where we're able to, uh, or at least we're, we're starting to move that way where people can submit a lot of the documents online. And that digital transformation um, was always intended. I think that uh, COVID again has expedited that. Um, and for me, that's a priority is to move a lot of that servicing online. It's just, it's just better customer service for people. And if it can cut down and, and make things faster, which helps um, to get through those delays and reduces costs um, in getting housing and, you know, having people do their home renovations, um, then that's a good thing. We should be doing more of that. Okay. So getting back to the patios, though, you think if people want them, if people want to perhaps sit on a patio with a heat lamp or whatever the case may be over the winter, they need to let you know. They need to let us know. It always helps. It's really great for council to hear um, the voices of the residents. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That's Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver MPA City Councillor, talking about those temporary, and I, now I put that in air quotes, temporary uh, street patios that were uh, you know, set up by hundreds of businesses, something like 360 licenses had been granted to do this. But remember, they were temporary and they were supposed to expire, meaning restaurants were supposed to take them down as of October 31st. Now they're talking about extending them. This is Mornings with Simi. You learn something new every day. For instance, did you know there is a floating home co-op practically in downtown Vancouver? I did not know this, but we are going to learn all about it right now with the help of Derek Peterson with the Greater Vancouver Floating Home Co-op in Falls Creek South. Derek, thanks for being here. Good to me. Now, what area are we talking about exactly? Where the marina located, we are located basically just to the east of uh, Granville Island. All right. How long has this co-op been there? Uh, it was started to, well, we started building it in the mid-70s. I think it was completed in 79, 1979. 
and I've been going strong ever since. Okay, so how many homes are we talking about? Uh, 55 uh, members, uh, and then of course there's some single people, there's you know, couples, there's elderly, we've got all sorts of uh, <laughs> all sorts of Right, members. all sorts of people in the community there. Um, yeah. Do you find that this is something, Derek, that doesn't get a lot of attention? We've talked so much about housing and different options for housing, and I feel like this is one that doesn't get talked about. I think you were right uh, initially that nobody really seems to know we're here. I mean, they know the marine is here, but I don't think they know that it's uh, you know a co-op. And so, what does it mean, like to join the co-op? Can anybody buy in? How does that work? Yeah, anybody can buy in, um, like any co-op in the uh, False Creek South area. Uh, if you're interested in this type of thing, uh, you just have to apply. Uh, you get a meeting with the board, and um, yeah, that's about it. But it takes, like, it's a special kind of person who wants to live on a houseboat, though, Derek. I know there used to be many in the community that I lived in uh, before. What are the what are the upsides, first of all? Oh, well, I mean, look at the area we live in. False Creek South is, is one of the most beautiful areas in the world. You know, we're lucky to be near downtown. We're near Granville Island. Um, the school is right here. I have two children. I can literally almost watch them uh, walk right into their class. And we're very lucky to be in this, you know, specific place. Okay, but what are the downsides? Um, well, you know, if you're used to being in a, in a larger unit, of course, you, you're missing space. So um, you have to be <laughs> creative. You know, people are getting used to that now with the way things are in the property market. But uh, you do have to get used to to living in a smaller space. Is there more demand? Uh, like, has the co-op seen more demand, more applications since this housing crunch started? Um, no, I don't think so. It's, you know, this is something that isn't for everybody. Not that everybody couldn't do it. But I think because people don't know that we're here... Uh, and if you weren't a boater specifically or someone that might have a little bit of experience uh, otherwise, you know, traveling on their vessel and, and thinking about doing this permanently, we just don't have, I mean, there's a wait list, uh, quite a long wait list, um, but people are knocking down the door because I, I don't think they really realize we're here. Right. So 55, then that's the max you can have there? Uh, yes. The marina is uh, split between recreational vessels and uh, the member uh, liveaboards. And uh, I think it's probably in our lease uh, agreement somewhere, you know, because we're a co-op and we're bound by the, the lease we've signed and the co-op act and all those kind of things. Right. So you're saying there's a waiting list, though. So even if somebody wanted to live there, it's not like somebody could just buy in tomorrow. Um, the way to get around the wait list is if there's a member here who is uh, leaving and taking their vessel or, or just leaving, you could buy their vessel and you could acquire their membership that way. So that's how I got in. Otherwise, I probably never would have got in myself. <laughs> okay, well, that's a big deterrent. <laughs> yeah. What about price-wise, though? Like, is this comparable? Like, everything else has gone way up in price in Vancouver. What about the floating home co-op? Uh, no, the price is, uh, like most of the co-ops, they've, they've managed to stay stable with, you know, good management. And, uh, I mean, boats, the boats themselves, you could have an expensive boat or you can have a, a relatively uh, cheap one like mine. <laughs> so we, like I said, we bought our, our vessel to get in and, uh, we, you know, maybe we paid a small premium uh, to get in. Uh, but we don't have a, our, our vessel is, is quite inexpensive. The living costs here are, are I don't know, half, maybe a third of what you would pay on land kind of thing. Um, it's, it's very affordable. And I, you know, I'm here with two kids and my wife and cat and, uh, and we, <laughs> we survive okay 
Okay. Yeah. Derek, I don't know if you want to be promoting this, though, right? Because the more people find out about it, you might see demand go up. <laughs> well, that's not a bad thing either, because we could uh, we could help with affordable housing if we were able to expand. And, you know, we're we're part of the False Creek South uh, Neighborhood Association and and we're on the, you know, the lease stuff as well. So we need to get our lease uh, renewed. And part of that renewal could be expansion. We would love to expand. So you think that's a housing option then that we should consider? I think based on the wait list and, and all that kind of stuff that, yeah, if we were to expand, we could probably get people, more people interested and, uh, and fill up those spots, yeah. Huh. All right, Derek, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate your time. That's Derek Peterson of the Greater Vancouver Floating Home Co-op in False Creek South. Yes, their lease is up and they're thinking that maybe they should think about expansion to provide a housing alternative for more people. And I know this is very popular in some of the south of the Fraser communities, but what do you think? Would you want to live on a floating home that close to downtown Vancouver? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, the name Jeff Rubin is probably familiar to you, former chief economist with CIBC World Markets, columnist with the Globe and Mail. He's written books on economics and energy, but his latest book is a bit different. It's different because it takes a look at the middle class and what has happened to the middle class as a result of globalization. So the book is called The Expendables, and Jeff Rubin joins us now to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Now, how long had you been working on this before the whole COVID-19 pandemic hit? Um, I guess the genesis of this book is two research papers I had written for the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, where I was a senior fellow. Um, So really, I guess the last two and a half years, um, the book was supposed to come out April 28th, but obviously that got nuked by the COVID-19 thing, but I've taken the opportunity to write a preface and an afterword linking the impact of COVID-19 on what I was talking about, which was the whole process of globalization. Right, because you really put out an argument there about how devastating globalization has been to the middle class. Do you think COVID-19 then has exacerbated what you saw? No, I think on the opposite, there's a silver lining. Every pandemic, going back to the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages up to the Spanish flu, have all boosted wages in their wake. And I mean, they did so just because of the physical decimation of the labor force. There were less peasants to work in the field, less workers to work in factories, and hence the price of labor rose. And I think, ironically, the same thing will happen here, not because of the physical decimation of the labor force, but I think COVID-19 is a game changer, that it's showing that, you know, when you absolutely need globalization to work and deliver on its promises, it fails, as we saw with N95 masks or ventilators. And I think this is a real tipping point, because up until now, the arguments that I advance in my book have pretty well been the exclusive domain of either the populist right, Donald Trump, or the populist left, Bernie Sanders. I think COVID-19 has suddenly made those arguments mainstream. 
Yeah, let's talk about some of the stats that you have there, the facts as you put them. Uh, North American real wages peaked in 1975. One of the ones that really struck me is the percentage of the economy that is made up by middle class spending. And in 1980, 60%. Today, it's 40. What happened? Right, and, and that's just in line with you know the fact that for the first time in the post-war era, the middle class is no longer the majority of households. Uh, they've been constantly shrinking as a percentage of the population, as a percentage of household income. They've gotten a lot older. They've gotten a lot poorer. In short, they're showing signs of extinction, and not just in Canada. You know, what we can talk about in Canada is just as true as for Australia, the UK, or the United States. Right. So what happened then? Could you maybe explain to people what it is about well, globalization that decimated the middle class? It's all about what jobs the economy is producing and no longer producing. In the heyday of the middle class, the 50s, the 60s, um, middle class workers basically made you know the things that they consumed, whether it was televisions, cars, dishwashers. We haven't seen net job creation in the goods-producing side of the economy in Canada for almost 20 years. I mean, that's not to say that we haven't seen a lot of job creation, but it's all been on the lower-paying service side and more recently in the so-called gig economy where many workers don't even get minimum wage because they're considered independent contractors. You know, the reason we're not producing those things, the reason not creating jobs in the good sector of the economy is because all of those jobs have gone to places like China and Mexico, where, of course, labor is a fraction of the cost that it is in places like Canada or the United States. Right. But the people who are making money are making so much of it, they're buying a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's not like globalization hasn't made people money. Look at the capitalization of Apple, for example. You know, how many cell phones does Apple manufacture in California? Zero, okay? I mean, um, Apple, you know, benefits enormously for the fact that its products are made by people who make $1.50 to $2 an hour, and Apple is by no means uh, unique. That's become the new template. And look, you know, I mean, I was the chief economist of an investment bank for 20 years. I fully understand the attraction of paying $2 an hour for labor than $25 an hour for labor. But, you know, what's lacking is a sense of balance between the interests of shareholders and the interests of domestic workers. And we certainly saw that in the kind of trade agreement that Christia Freeland signed in the U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement, which allows companies like Magna and GM to shut down their Canadian plants and move those jobs to Mexico. Is there a way back, though? You talked about Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump. They've talked about that, but can you make that happen? Trump's done more than talk. Um, the, the, The point that I wanted to make that often gets left out of the political narratives of the day in the United States is that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump basically had, we're talking from the same page on trade. You know, had Bernie Sanders won the nomination in 2016 and went on to become president, we'd have a trade war with China right now, and NAFTA would have been renegotiated because they both had the same view. Donald Trump's done more than talk. He's imposed crippling tariffs. And guess what? Behold, all of a sudden, manufacturing employment in industries like auto, steels, and aluminum is coming back in the United States 
because with the tariff, there's no longer an, an economic incentive for to you know to obtain global supply chains in cheap wage countries because what you gain on the wage side, you're going to lose on the tariff side. Is that sustainable then moving forward? That's very sustainable. That's, and it's very applicable in Canada should we have a government that's, uh, that's interested in protecting middle-class jobs instead of just talking about it. Um, you know, as I say, I think we're going to see a reversal of globalization. And globalization was created by the dismantling of tariff walls brick by brick through successive rounds of GATT and WTO um, negotiations and through trade deals like NAFTA. And that's left a lot of workers exposed and a lot of households left behind. That's a fascinating book. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Have a great day. You too. That is Jeff Rubin. The book is called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Jeff Rubin, also the former, of course, chief economist for CIBC World Markets. Uh, That book is available now.